All right, there we go. Good morning. Somebody said to me, I had this on, make sure you turn that off in the bathroom. I can't even get it turned on, so I'm not worried about it being turned off. Um, Exciting times here at the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. I'm sure this will be announced later on in the service, but Ryan Wheeler was baptized on Friday evening, right before the Friday night singing, and be sure to greet him and tell him how glad you are to have him now as our brother in Christ. And just want to say to the congregation, these are exciting times. People placing membership, individuals obeying the gospel, and we should count ourselves blessed to be a part of the great things that God is doing here. And just want to commend the congregation for being evangelistic and welcoming. And let's do our best to keep it up. If you're a guest or a visitor in our presence, we want you to know that Lehman Avenue is a loving church family. And if you're considering a place to place church membership, that you would consider us that church home that you're looking for. And if you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would like nothing more than to sit down and study with you what the New Testament says about becoming a Christian and what God requires of you. And one more thing before we begin our lesson this morning. Tonight's sermon is going to be directed at our children. So if you have children, we're asking you to bring them tonight and have them sit on the first few rows. We're going to preach a lesson targeting them on five words that every child should know. And adults should know these words, too, so you feel free to come back. But make sure to bring your kids. Even if you say you're somebody who typically doesn't come back on a Sunday night, come back tonight. Be encouraging for our children to see their friends and classmates here and to hear selection from God's word, a portion of it directed completely at them. They can come for few Packers at 545 and then the lesson right after that. And so look forward to seeing you back tonight. When you think about traitors in history, there are some names that just rise to the surface. You might think about Cassius and Brutus, who literally backstabbed Caesar on the Senate floor. Or maybe you think about Benedict Arnold. And now he sold out the America to the Britons for the equivalent of today would be about three million dollars. Or Robert Ford, who was a fellow gang member with Jesse James, but later shot James for ten thousand dollars and to have his crimes pardoned by the governor. Or more recently, Robert Hansen, who's been described as a church going in family man. He served 25 years as an FBI agent, but also as a double agent working for the Soviet Union before he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. You know, there have been people that have gone behind individuals' backs, and you just can't trust them. They're traitors. But it's hard to have that discussion at all without thinking about Judas. The name Judas has just become synonymous with being a traitor, with being an apostate, with being a deserter, and for good reason. I mean, we teach our children the apostles by songs. Jesus called them one by one. Peter, Andrew, James and John. Next came Philip, Thomas, too, Matthew and Bartholomew. James, the one they called the less Simon, also Thaddeus. And then we get to Judas, the 12th apostle Judas made. Jesus was by him betrayed. Before we can do anything else, by merely learning the song and the words, we learned that Jesus's life, Judas's life, excuse me, was one of trading and one of ruin. And one where he ultimately failed. The apostles are special, special servants of Jesus Christ selected by him. Jesus prayed for the apostles and then chose them to be his servants. He gave them miraculous ability in order to go out and to heal and do great things. Now, all of the apostles were disciples, but not all of the disciples were apostles. And so the twelve, they were special. Paul would say they would be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. They served in a unique and special role. And so when you think about Judas, he was in that camp and in that group. And yet he failed. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, though he doesn't say much. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all mention Judas. And while Judas started out great, just like the others, eventually his heart turned. Something changed in Judas and it ruined him. Matthew 26:14 through 16 says he agreed with the chief priests. 
and the higher-ups to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 47 through 49, and places the betrayal kiss on the cheek of the Son of God. And then finally, when he tries to return the money and they won't take it back, he is overcome with worldly sorrow, Matthew 27, 3 through 7. And he goes out and hangs himself and later falls and his bowels gush out. Judas is ruined. And you might think we would do better spending our time thinking about one of the more noble apostles. I mean, maybe John or Peter or even Paul, who was an apostle born out of due time. But Judas's life has some things to teach us. Judas's life stands at the front of life's classroom and teaches us lessons. If we stay still long enough to listen, we need to learn from Judas. Judas can rightly be called the fallen apostle because he did fall. But if you and I hope to be standing at the end of life's race, It's to the degree that we study the lives of individuals like Judas. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And what do they teach us about Judas's life? What are the lessons that we can learn from this fallen apostle? Let's study together. Number one, Judas teaches us that righteousness cannot be borrowed. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 10 and notice this is one of the lists where the apostles are listed. Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6. These give us the passages where the apostles are listed by name. But notice as Jesus selects these individuals in Matthew 10 and verse 1, it says that he gave them power over the unclean spirits. And they had the ability to go out and to heal diseases and afflictions. And Judas was in that number as well. The first thing Judas teaches us from his life is that righteousness cannot be borrowed. He was prayed for just like all of the other apostles before he was selected. Jesus prayed for him all night. Luke six and verse 12. He saw signs and miracles that people had never seen before, like the opening the eyes of the blind. John nine and verse thirty two. He heard sermons that people would have died to hear. John seven and verse forty six. When Jesus preached, it was said nobody ever spoke like this man spoke. And he was surrounded by some of the greatest spiritual contemporaries one could ever hope to have in their company in the other apostles. And for all of those things and all of the great things you could say about Judas, he still failed. And it's because righteousness cannot be borrowed. Just because you're around other people that are doing the right things and you have other good examples in your life, as noble as that may be, if you don't take those things in and make them your own, it'll do you no good whatsoever. Judas had the greatest teacher in Jesus Christ, the greatest example in the Son of God, and yet it didn't stop Judas from falling. He still fell. You know, the Old Testament teaches us in places like Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, 4 through 20, that our spiritual predecessors don't necessarily ensure that we're going to follow in their footsteps. And Judas shows us what that's all about in living color as Judas makes bad choices and eventually steps out of favor with God by his own will. And none of the righteousness that Jesus portrayed before that could rescue him. As we think about Judas's life, we should appreciate a lesson we need to learn. We can't borrow the righteousness from other people. It has to be our own. We need this lesson. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 15, let us beware not to boast in labors beyond our own and in other men's labors. Paul was saying, listen, we've got to take credit for the things that we've done. We can't boast in the measure in the labors of other people. And we need to make sure that we don't try. You know, sometimes you hear some people talk and, oh, their mom was just as faithful as faithful could be. And maybe their dad was an elder or a deacon in the church, or maybe their spouse is really locked in and busy in the kingdom of God. And to hear them tell it, you would think maybe they don't mean to suggest this, but you would think that they believe 
that they would get some credit from what the individuals did, maybe in their family or in their sphere of influence. Or maybe that because their spouse is really involved or their mom or dad was really a Batterson or a troop in the kingdom of God, that that somehow bleeds over into their lives. But that's not true at all. Romans 14 and verse 12 says, so then every one of us must give account of himself to God. And in a church that wants to engage everyone for eternity, we should be sure that we are personally engaged. Righteousness is not like a cold. If you stand close enough in the vicinity of somebody else that has it, you just sort of pick it up. No, you've got to make up your own mind, make your own choice and own decisions that says, I love good examples. I want to be like those individuals that are noble in my life and that I see doing the right thing. I want to make their virtues mine. Evil companions do corrupt good morals, but good companions don't ensure good morals. We've got to make our own mind up to do what's right. Judas had the greatest examples in the world and still he didn't make it. And the same thing can be true about us. It's possible to be in a thriving and active and flourishing congregation and be spiritually dead ourselves. Just hanging around the right people won't do it. And Judas learned that lesson and we should learn it from him. If you go to the airport, TSA makes you go through that little body scanner and you put your hands up this way and they want to see. They want to see what's on you and with you and in you. It doesn't matter how big the party is that you're traveling with. Everybody has to go in that machine for themselves. And other people in your party may go through the machine and no problem and just keep going. But if they find something on you or with you or in you that's questionable, they're going to stop you and examine you. And you won't be able to say, wait, my party's going. They're running to the gate. They're going to say, we've got some questions for you. And don't you know the judgment is going to be in depth? The judgment is going to be serious. The judgment is going to be detailed and the judgment of God is going to be individual. Jesus says the son of man will come with his angels and the glory of his father and repay everyone according to their works. Matthew 16 and verse 27. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in our body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians five and verse 10. Every man must bear his own burden. Galatians six and verse five. Nobody else can stand up for us or speak up for us. We can't borrow their oil, so to speak. Matthew 25, one through 13. Judas says, learn from me. I was surrounded by the best and still was able to do the worst because righteousness can't be borrowed. It has to be our own. Now, here's number two. We learn from Judas that money isn't everything. Go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter 12 and notice what happens in verses three through six. John tells us later in John 13 and verse 29 that Judas was sort of the treasurer for the apostles. Judas held the money bag. But what John doesn't tell us, and we know from reading the gospel accounts, the money bag held Judas. John chapter 12, they're in Bethany. Jesus is. He goes there and he had just raised Lazarus in chapter 11. He goes back to Bethany and we're told Martha's serving and Lazarus is there at the table. And Mary comes with this expensive pound of ointment of pure nard. And she pours it on Jesus, anoints his feet, wipes them with her hair. And then Judas says to himself, the text says, Judas, the one that would betray him. He said to himself, why was this precious ointment wasted? It could have been sold for 300 denarii. And the poor. But John parenthetically notes he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he kept the money bag and used to ESV says help himself to what was in the bag. He used to steal. You see, Judas was a great man at one point selected by Jesus to be an apostle, but money eventually ruined him and it can happen to us. The second thing we learn from the life of Judas is money isn't everything. You know, the Bible talks about this a lot. It's an important theme throughout Scripture, because whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of money, it's a struggle. And so Jesus would say in Matthew six and verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. 
Or the famous verse in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and verse 10, where Paul says that the love of money in verse 10 is the root of all kinds of evil. And sometimes people hear that and they misread it and they'll say money is the root of all evil. And they don't understand what the verse is actually teaching. But then on the other hand, some never read that verse for what it's actually saying. And they take the teeth out of it. They say, well, the love of money is the root of all evil. But we can forget that love is blind. And many people find themselves walking up to the marriage altar with vows professed and lips puckered up to a dollar that will never love them back. And they fall in love with money, which will always and often disappoint if we make it our God. Paul says those that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and in perdition. Money can ruin our lives if we let it. Somebody went to the mogul, John D. Rockefeller, once and said, Rockefeller, how much money is enough money? Rockefeller said just a little bit more. He couldn't be pleased. He couldn't be satisfied. And that can happen to us. This is Joseph Heller. He wrote the famous book, Catch-22. Housel, in his book, The Psychology of Money, opens one of the chapters by telling the story about Mr. Heller. On one occasion, he was at the party of a billionaire, a hedge fund. And one of his friends nudged him and pointed at the man who was hosting the party, the billionaire. And he said, Heller, do you see that man? He has made more money in a day than your book, Catch-22, as successful as it is, has made in its entire history. And Heller said, that doesn't bother me. Because I've got one thing that man will never have. His friend's eyes got wide and he said, what? Heller said, enough. He was satisfied. He was content. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, with godliness and contentment, we should be content. With godliness, let us be content. It's great game. We brought nothing into this world and it's certain we'll carry nothing out. Paul is saying, be content with what you have. And if Judas was standing before us today, he would say, listen to me. I tried it. I tried to be happy with money and money eventually ruined me. Colossians chapter three and verse five, Paul warns us to flee from covetousness because it is idolatry. You know, what do you think about money? What you think about money says a lot about you. Consider a few questions for your own heart. How do you feel about finances? Is your whole mood upended when the money's tight or when the money isn't right? Are you overwhelmed with concerns about the market and how things are going and what that says about you and whether or not you're going to have enough to make it through? Are you stingy and selfish? Are you like Judas in that you sometimes use selfishness or stewardship as a cloak for your selfishness and sort of hide behind that to keep from helping others and doing the things that God would have you to do? Do you love money so much that you would sin to get it or sin if you don't get it? You see, Jesus often warned individuals about their relationship with money because he knew what it could do to individuals. Some people will do anything for money, but they never stop to consider what money will do to them. For 17 years, a show ran on TV called Fear Factor, and maybe you've seen it. They'd eat bugs and do all sorts of crazy things for, in the end, hoping to win $50,000. You know, some people will do anything for money, and that was Judas. He couldn't have seen himself. You couldn't have pulled Judas aside beforehand and told him, Judas, this is going to end bad for you. One day, because of your love for money, you'll be suspended between heaven and earth with a noose tied around your neck. And when you go to return the very thing you thought that you just had to have, they won't take it back and it'll be your undoing. You couldn't have talked him out of it at the time. Surely the first time Judas dipped his hand into the bag and put the money in his pocket and nobody else saw him, he thought this will be a one-time thing. This won't define me. And it ruined him. Judas teaches us money isn't everything. There are times when Christians, they don't have control of their schedule. 
And it may be the case that a Christian has to work on a Sunday or a Wednesday and they would rather be with the people of God, but it's out of their control. And as much as they can, they want to be present in the assembly. But then there are times when an individual can choose and he or she just for love or prosperity can never say no to overtime. They've got to have more. There's one more boat to buy. There's one more vacation to take. There's one more thing that I need. And often God is told no so that we can say yes to our material possessions. And Judas teaches us it won't end well for us. One day a man came before Jesus and said, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter between you and your brother? Take heed and beware. Keep your life free from covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things in which he possesses. Money is not evil in and of itself, but money is not everything. Solomon says, labor not to be rich. Cease from your own wisdom. For riches truly make themselves wings and they fly as an eagle toward the heavens. Money's invisible. You can't grasp it as soon as you do. You always want more. Judas had the money bag. The money bag had Judas. And guess what? The money bag won. God has blessed us with all things richly to enjoy. But we should be careful that our possessions don't possess us. Here's number three. We learn from Judas that Jesus loved his enemies. Turn over one page to John 13. In John 13, Jesus is about to go out of this world. He says he knew that his time had ended and he was going on to die for the sins of humanity. But right before Jesus does this, he wants to teach his disciples one final lesson, a lesson in humility. He's about to wash their feet. It's interesting to me that in John 13, 21 and 22, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And notice the text in verse 22. The apostles are wondering. They all become sorrowful and they say, am I going to be the one to do this? That tells us two things. One we'll note now and one near the end of the lesson. One of the things that Jesus's statement about somebody betraying him and the disciples response teaches us about Jesus is this. He treated Judas so well that the others didn't know Judas was the one. Why didn't they ever con conclude to themselves? Well, we know it's Judas because Jesus never gives him any of the leftover fish and biscuits. Why didn't they conclude to themselves? Hey, Judas didn't get any power for demons to come out like John or maybe like Peter. You see, Jesus treated Judas just like everybody else. In fact, John 13 and verse one says he loved them to the end. Verse two, Judas is about to betray him. And still Jesus gets down and washes the disciples feet. You work down through John 13 and it's not until verse 30 that it says Judas went out and he left to do his dirt. That means when Ju Jesus got down and washed the disciples feet, he washed all of their feet. Even Judas. We learn a lesson indirectly on this point from Judas, and it is that Jesus loved his enemies. He had taught his apostles this. He had taught his disciples. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Jesus says, don't just love those that love you. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Do good to them. For your father makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just as well as the unjust. He's saying, I want you to love your enemies. Or Matthew 7 and verse 12, all things that you want people to do to you, you be sure to do to them. This is the law and the prophets. Love your enemies. Or Luke 6 and verse 38, you be merciful just like your father is merciful. But here's the point we don't need to miss. Jesus did not just command those things. He embodied those things. He didn't just tell his disciples, love your enemies, be kind to people that don't deserve it. He was kind to Judas who didn't deserve it. When Judas behaved like Jesus's enemy, Jesus behaved like Judas's best friend. In fact, that's the first thing Jesus says to him when he sees G Judas coming in Matthew 27. Friend, from where have you come? For Judas, the relationship had ended. Jesus loved him still. We learn from Judas that Jesus loved his enemies. Reynolds Price is a poet and he said, 
it's my belief that the chief aim for learning anything about humanity and the human race is to give it mercy. And that's what Jesus did for Judas. And that's what he teaches us. Question, do you have any enemies? Do you have any people that get on your nerves, people that are sort of difficult to deal with? We might be tempted to do this. You say, you know what? I'm a good Christian person and I never return evil for evil or railing for railing or reviling for reviling. Jesus didn't do that. First Peter 2, 21 through 25. But here's what I'll do. I won't do anything harmful. I won't do anything evil to these individuals, but I know what I will do. I'm going to avoid them. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, don't do anything wrong to your enemies or even give us license to avoid our enemies. Jesus says, I want you to go out and to engage them. It's only in that engagement that you can turn the human heart. Jesus doesn't avoid Judas. He engages him. He washes his feet. And that's what he calls us to do. Not to render evil for evil, but on the contrary, a blessing, because we've been called to inherit a blessing. First Peter three and verse nine. Abraham Lincoln once said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. He realized that if you really get to know somebody or at least serve them and wash their feet, you might change. You might change them, but you will assuredly change you. Do you know a Judas in your life? If you do, it is a surety that they need a Jesus in theirs. Judas was loved by Jesus all the way to the end, even though he didn't reciprocate the love, even though he was resentful. Jesus bowed down and did the work of a servant. We often highlight that and we should. But appreciate that he got down and washed the same feet that Judas would later get up and use to run and go out and betray him. And here's the thing about it. He knew it all the while. He sang it throughout his ministry. One of you will betray me. One of you is a devil. John six and verse 70. Jesus wasn't guessing about who that was, but he never let it show. And we learn from Judas that when Jesus says, love your enemies, he means it and he shows us what it's all about to do. So here's the next one. We learn from Judas's life. Never give the devil an inch. Never give Satan an inch. Turn your Bible to Luke 22 and notice verse three. And at the same time, go to John 13 and verse 27. We know what Judas would eventually do, but it's important to see how the Bible portrays this and what the Bible doesn't say that we should be careful not to assume. In Luke 22 and verse three, it says, then Satan entered the heart of Judas, the one that would betray Jesus in John 13 and verse 27, says the same thing. We learn from Judas to never give the devil an inch. When the Bible says that the devil entered Judas, what does that mean? It means this. The devil wasn't always in Judas. There was a point when Judas was right and then he changed and the devil entered him. But we should never give the devil an inch because he always will ask for another one. First Peter five and verse eight, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom you have to resist steadfast in the faith because the same conflicts being accomplished by your brethren who are throughout the world. Beware of renting rooms in your heart and mind to the devil. Beware. He never comes for just an inch. He always wants the whole person. Beware of renting rooms in your heart and mind to the devil and thinking this will just be a temporary visit because in his mind, he always rents to own and he's after permanent residency. And Judas learned that the hard way. He gave him a launching pad in his life and the devil readily accepted Ephesians 4:27. When Paul says neither give place to the devil, he means don't give the devil a launching pad because he'll capitalize on it and seize it and take it and he'll ruin you. Beware of giving the devil an inch. This also tells us Judas had a choice. Sometimes you're in a Bible class and somebody says, well, Judas was set to betray Jesus from birth and he was condemned and doomed and there was nothing he could do. Listen, there were prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus being betrayed. Psalm 41 and verse nine says somebody's going to lift up their heel against the son of man. 
Psalm 55, 12 through 14 says the Messiah will be betrayed by a familiar friend. Zechariah dares to name the number of pieces that he would be betrayed for 30. Zechariah 11 and verse 12. But all of those prophecies did nothing to extinguish the free will of Judas. He had it, but he surrendered it and exercised it in unrighteousness. Notice John 13 and verse 27. Jesus will eventually say to Judas, Satan enters his heart. But then Jesus says what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas had a choice and he chose to use it to betray the son of man because he gave the devil a small entryway into his heart. We need to be careful. We need to appreciate in our own lives. We've got to keep our guard up and make sure we don't let the devil in. You've got all kinds of things for protection and safety measures. I'm sure your house has a lock on the door and your car the same. You've got a bank card. You've got a pin number. And they tell you you're the only one that needs to have this pin number. Even our phones now are down to the point where it's not just the code, but there's fingerprint and facial recognition so that nobody gets in. You're guarding those things. But we need a heart guard as well. Do not let Satan in even a little bit because he'll ruin you. He gave him an inch. And the devil took over Judas completely. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional account of a demon talking to a younger demon about how to overrun people that are Christians. And this book is just a series of letters of a higher demon, Screwtape, writing to who he calls his nephew, Wormwood, about, hey, there's this Christian. I want you to overwhelm him. I want you to take him and ruin him. In the 12th letter of the book, though, Lewis gives a quote about how the devil might think about overcoming Christians. And it helps with this point about giving the devil an inch. Notice what Lewis says. He says, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That is God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect, the whole effect, is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than lying if lying will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Lewis's point in this book is, listen, the devil doesn't care what he uses to get you. If you give him an inch, he'll take whatever he can. He'll go for the gusto, but he'll go for the small things as well. Don't give Satan an inch. How might we do that? By failing to forgive others. Second Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Somebody wrongs us. We say, I'm not forgiven so easily. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. When I get ready, I'll forgive him. And the devil loves that. Maybe it's by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Second Samuel 11 and verse one, David, who knows what would have happened if David would have been on the battlefield instead of the balcony. But the writer tells us in second Samuel 11 and verse one, when it was the time for the kings to go out to battle, David was at home. He shouldn't have been there. Maybe we give the devil an inch when we sometimes say to ourselves, I'll skip one day of devotion, but I'll make it up tomorrow. Listen, I'm taking a day off and I'll be back and I'll double up tomorrow. And, you know, sometimes that happens. But when we plan that, the devil says, oh, I love that. I'll take that inch. Maybe we give the devil an inch. When we let our anger continually eat at us, continually eat at us. How many times did Moses get frustrated? And then Numbers 20 and verse 12, he just strikes the rock. He's not mad at God. He's mad at the people. But the devil says, I'll take that inch. We let pride and jealousy and envy get the best of us. And the devil says, I'll take that, too. Because the devil knows all he needs is an inch. When the devil enters a man, God always departs from him. As King Saul when King Saul let the devil enter him, God departed and had nothing to do with him because God will not share dual custody or joint custody with the devil. And Judas teaches us never give Satan an inch because he'll ruin our lives if we let him. Here's number five. Be remembered for righteousness. Listen, even people that don't know the Bible well, they couldn't list all of the apostles. Most people would get Peter and probably Judas. And for good reason, Judas is remembered, but not for anything noble or righteous that he had done. But he's remembered all the more. 
Acts chapter 1, the church is about to begin, and they've got all of the apostles in the 120 there, and they've got to replace Judas. And Peter stands up in about verse 16, and he starts talking about Judas. He quotes from Psalm 41 and verse 9 about the fact that Judas was supposed to betray Jesus, or that he would based on prophecy. And then in verse 25, he says, we've got to get somebody to replace Judas who left his place. The old King James says, by transgression, he fell. Judas is forever remembered as a fallen apostle and a traitor. Every time the apostles are listed, Judas is mentioned last. And because his name was so common in the first century, it's always mentioned with this descriptive or epithet at the end. The one who betrayed Jesus. Mark three and verse 19. Judas says to you and me, we probably will be remembered for something. And so we better make it good. You probably won't produce the fruit in your life that you hope to produce. You and I will produce the fruit in our lives from the seeds that we plant and water on a daily basis. We're going to be remembered for something. But Judas says, make it good. The Bible encourages us in this regard. Hebrews 11 and verse four, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain and his works were received and counted as righteousness. And he being dead is still speaking. He's remembered for righteousness. Jesus talks about Christians in Revelation 14 and verse 13. John says, I heard a voice saying to me, right. Yes. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. They rest from their labors and their works do follow them. What does that mean? They're remembered for righteousness. Balaam says in Numbers 23 and verse 10, though he didn't practice it himself, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. That is, I want to be remembered for righteousness. And Judas teaches us this should be our greatest desire. There are people in the Bible and in history that no matter what, no matter what anybody ever says about them, you'll never be able to divorce them from the wickedness they did. Doesn't matter how much time passes. Every time you think of Cain, you'll think about the murder. Adam and Eve did a lot of great things. They had a lot of firsts. They'll always be remembered for the tree in the garden. Achan's mentioned only one time, really, or in one section of scripture, and you can't get away from what he did. That's why people don't name their daughters Jezebel for the most part. First Kings 16 and verse 31, her name's synonymous with evil. And in modern times, Hitler and Stalin and Osama, you think of certain names and listen, they just conjure up negative connotations and you can't get away from what they've done. And Judah says, you're going to be remembered. Be remembered for righteousness. I don't know what Kathleen Dimlo thought her obituary was going to read like. She knew one day she'd have one just like you and I will if time suspends and the Lord delays his coming. But I want to read you hers. And this is what her children said about her. They published this in the newspaper. And as you might expect, after you hear it, it made the news. This is what they wrote about their mom. It says, Kathleen Dimlo, also known as Skunk, was born on March 19, 1938, to Joseph and Gertrude Skunk of Wabasso. She married Dennis Dimlo at St. Anne's in Wabasso in 1957 and had two children, Gina and Jay. In 1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle Dimlo, and moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were raised by her parents and Clements, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Skunk. She passed away on March 31st, 2018 in Springfield and will now face the judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. Now, we can have a different sermon about their bitterness and resentment, but nevertheless, she was remembered just as she was. Jesus went about doing good, Acts 10:38, and his works spoke for themselves. That's how they remembered him. And we'll be remembered just as we are. We won't be able to come back and make people say things about us that aren't true. We'll be seen just as we are because we are writing our obituary every day right now. Judas betrayed Jesus. This doesn't mean that our worst moments define us or that forgiveness can't be sought. It can and it must. But Matthew 7 and verse 20 will meet us at the judgment. 
by their fruits, you will know them and will be known by our fruits. The lesson that Judas teaches us is we're going to be remembered in some way, form or fashion and be remembered for righteousness. But this is more than just saying I want to be remembered for righteousness over wickedness. No, it's more than that. The Bible saying be sure to be remembered for righteousness over worthlessness. Listen, some people at the end of their lives, all you're going to be able to say about them is, oh, he was real strong. He went to the gym all the time. You know, she had more shoes than the shoe carnival. Nobody wore a ring like her. Oh, his car collection. How amazing. You know what? He was the best man on the job. Nothing bad, nothing evil, but nothing much either. It's not just righteousness over wickedness. It's righteousness over worthlessness. Put your eggs in the eternal basket. John 6, 27. Labor not for the meat that perishes, but that which endures to everlasting life. Judas will never be forgotten. It didn't have to be this way for him. But now that the deed is done, it can't be any other way. He'll always be remembered this way. And he says to us, they'll never forget you. Make sure it's good. Now, here's the last one. Number six. We learned from Judas that it could happen to you. I told you there are two lessons we learn at the Passover table when Jesus says one of you will betray me. One is how good Jesus treated Judas. But here's the second one. It could happen to you. It's impressive when Jesus says one of you will betray me as many times as he repeats it. The disciples response is always the same. Lord, is it going to be me? What does that say? It says a lot of things, but it says this much. Judas looked just like the rest. His demons came out on the limited commission just like everybody else's. He sat attentively at the sermons just like they did. He heard the very same things that they did. And there were no outward or exterior indications that he's going to be the one. Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. The last thing Judas would say to us is, I know you don't think it could be you, but it could happen. It could happen to you just like it happened to me. Judas was selected and chosen and prayed over, and yet he fell. And he's not the only one. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles, as spiritual, spiritually mature as they were, they were worried about the same. Paul says, I keep my body and beat it, literally bringing it into subjection, lest that by any means at the end I won't be a castaway. We would come alongside Paul and say, listen, you're the furthest person that needs to be worried about this. Paul says, I'm deathly worried about it. First Corinthians 9, 27. Second John verse eight, John says, look to ourselves and take heed so that we won't lose the things we've worked for, but instead receive a full reward. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he said it could happen to me. And if we read the New Testament and say to ourselves, well, I've been walking with Jesus so long, I'm just sure I'm going to end my life in glory and at the finish line. And we sort of lay back and rest on our laurels. We will drive ourselves into the same ditch Judas found himself in because it could happen to us. Now, if we're in Christ and we're walking in the light, we have no need to fear. We do have security as believers, but we must remain vigilant. The only way to be sure that you and I don't ever end up like Judas is to continually inspect ourselves in our own lives. It's all too tempting to be like Peter in John 21 and find ourselves often turning about and saying, but what about this person? And I can't believe he said that. And I can't believe she did this. In the end, the only person that we can change is ourselves. The only person we're responsible for at the very end of life is ourselves. And so we should be sure to take heed to ourselves, our own life. First Timothy 4:16. Paul told Timothy, you take heed to yourself and the teaching and continue in them. For in so doing, you will save yourself and those that hear you. And in the end, that's the only person you can save. Beware viewing the Bible as a camera and not as a mirror. A camera shows you everything that's wrong with everybody out there. But the Bible is not just the camera, though it does function in that way. No, the Bible is also a mirror that shows you everything that's wrong in here. Psalm 94 and verse 12 says, blessed is the man whom the Lord disciplines and the one that he instructs out of his law. We haven't been doing Christianity so long that we're professionals. 
and we don't need to take introspection of our own lives. Judas would say, it could happen to you just like it did to me. I wasn't always this way, Judas would say. I thought I was going to, I wanted to do all the right things. But you know, I took some days off, and I cheated sometimes, and I was dishonest, and I heard the sermons, and you know Jesus repeats some of these things, and I've heard them a bunch, and I just kind of, I kind of checked out. And then I really checked out. And then he was lost. The apostles all asked themselves individually, Lord, is it going to be me? Am I going to be the one? And they made sure that they inspected themselves and we should do the very same thing so that we can end up in glory with the Lord. Demas loved this present world and departed from Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. And it ended terribly for him. It doesn't have to for us. But the reality is that it could. The worst thing about Judas's life is how it ended. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. Peter made mistakes. John made mistakes. Bartholomew, they all deserted the Lord. On the worst night of Peter's life, it was also the worst night of Judas's life. But there was one difference. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Judas had to know. I mean, didn't he remember being in the house at Capernaum and hearing Jesus say to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Or maybe he was within earshot in John 8 when Jesus looked at the woman that had been caught in adultery in the very act. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Or maybe in Simon's house in Luke 7. After he heard Jesus pronounce forgiveness on so many people, didn't Judas know if he came back, the one that he embraced in the garden in treachery, he could again embrace him in truth. Jesus would have had him back. But Judas couldn't get over himself. The saddest thing about Judas is how it ended for him. It didn't have to end that way. But that's what he chose. And we don't have to choose that. No matter what we've done, no matter how much of it we've done, we don't have to go out and hang ourselves in our own guilt and our own shame. He will have us back because he washed Jesus, Judas's feet with water, but he has vowed to wash our sins in his own blood. If we come back and turn and confess that he's the Messiah and allow ourselves to be immersed in water, he'll wash away all of our sins. And even after we've done that, after we've been selected and chosen and called out from the world, if we stumble and stammer and make mistakes and fall, If we repent in turn, he'll have us back because he died to make sure that every one of us gets across the finish line in Jesus Christ. We will be remembered, but let us all die the death of the righteous. Judas has something to teach us, and he's teaching us that God loves us so much and doesn't want his end to be ours. But we've got to do our part. Mike's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If we can help you in any way, maybe in initially trusting in Jesus or in being restored to him, or maybe just pray for you as you're struggling with something, we'd love to do it. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.